Terry Van Eaton, would you come and pray for us, please? Good morning. What a privilege it is to come before the maker of everything and to petition him. And because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, he hears what we have. He hears our requests. A little bit of scripture. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Fathers, we come this morning to worship you and hear your words. Lord, what makes a difference is what we do with them in our lives. And so, Father, as we, we hear the word preached this morning, as Paul brings us the dimensions of the church, and we are the church. It's not this building. It's this body of people. And Lord, we commend ourselves to you this morning that what we hear, we will put into practice. That we will minister and we will give you honor and glory with our lives. And so as we go through a time when we're searching for the right person to come and, and be our pastor, you have appointed each one of us to a position of ministry to share the love of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have given us a mission and a purpose in life that transcends all else that we do. For, Lord, how many can we take with us to eternity with you? Lord, as we look around and, and look at the condition of the world, it would be easy to become discouraged. But you have said that the fields are white unto harvest and that the gospel of Jesus Christ will transcend all. So, Father, give us a mission this morning, a mission to serve you, to love you, and, Lord, to to do, for if we just hear the word and don't do anything with it, that's not loving you. So, Father, inflame our hearts towards you. Draw us with you. May we honor you with what we say and what we do. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Dave.
morning. Psalm 72. Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Thank you, Dave. So our first song this morning was really singing and offering prayer, uh, giving our hearts and our souls to the Lord. This next song is also really a singing prayer asking him to transform and conform our hearts, our minds, and our wills. As we review our catechism question, for the day, we haven't left our this spot. What is the church? And please bear with me as we say a lot of this together every Sunday. And we repeat ourselves. But think of it today as we've sung through prayerfully these songs. Think of saying this as if it is a prayer today. What is the church? Say this together as a prayer. God chooses and preserves for himself a community elected to eternal life and united by faith. Who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. God sends out this community 
to proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together and their love for one another. And our short prayer. A community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. John the Baptist, he tells his followers, at once echoing Isaiah 61, and foretelling the gospel, and proclaiming Christ as bridegroom, he says this, let's say this together. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And now our joy can be made complete in Christ, as we read from Revelation 19.7. Let's say this together. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has been himself ready. Robin, will you pray for us, please? Father God, thank you for this privilege of gathering together of like-minded people that we can praise you and worship you and, and learn and grow, Lord. In one of the songs, it, it said, my hope is in God. And that is our hope. He is our only hope, Lord. Let us just rely on him and bind ourselves to him, our eyes always on him, Lord. Allow him to guide our footsteps, our thoughts, and the words we speak, Lord. And let us carry this not only through today, but throughout the entire week that we can bring you honor and glory, Lord, and bring joy to you, Lord. I ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you for the thought and care you put into forming that part of our worship. Um, it was beautifully evident. And I kind of feel like I'm just kind of an afterthought, um, which is not a bad thing. Paul should be an afterthought. Before I begin, I just want to remind you that next Sunday we have an amazing privilege. Um, Caleb Suko um, from Ukraine, our missionary to Ukraine, will be here to speak to us and to remind us and to tell us about what the church is doing in the Ukraine and in the countries surrounding Ukraine. And I also want to remind you that we will be taking an offering specifically for Caleb and his ministry next Sunday. And I would hope that you would open your hearts and your wallets abundantly to provide uh, for them. We have opened our budget to them as a church uh, once um, in a special way. We contribute to that ministry every month, but I think it may be time for us to consider that one more time. 
but particularly next Sunday. We don't usually talk about money. I'm up here. Um, you are a generous people. Uh, but I wanted to make sure you understood that opportunity that's coming our way. Well, like Thomas said, we have been looking at the church now for eight weeks. Um, and probably longer than any of us have ever thought about looking at just the church. And I say just the church, and that seems so silly to me, to say just the church. Because the church is God's big idea. The church was in his mind before he spoke the first words of creation. He had designed this body, this building, this bride um, to be his to be a reflection of who he is and to glorify his name. Only God could think of such a thing. But he also gives us three metaphors that we've looked at. The first was the building. And we saw that this building is made up of stones, but that these stones that make up this building have been transformed. No longer just stones, but now living stones. And when he comes again, these stones will be so pure that you will be able to see through them like they are glass. That's you and I. Nothing hidden anymore. All open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to give an account. And we are welcomed into his presence as his living stones. We are also a body, but not just any body. No, not just any Buddy, not just anybody, but a whole new creation. A whole new creation consisting of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every race. How silly of us to have ever thought that racism would be something that we could really put up with as believers. We must embrace all people because all people are part, those who believe, are part in the family of God, in the building and in the body of Christ. It is beautiful in its diversity. It is stunningly beautiful in its unity as each part of that body that he has brought together by his will his spirit, and his word, as each part of that body functions together, it is magnificently, stunningly beautiful in its unity. And we've seen that there, in these metaphors for the church, there is one principal thing that we are taught about not only what the church looks like, but what the church does, and that is it grows. It grows in grace, in faith, through the knowledge of Christ, in the love of Christ, for the glory of Christ. That is what the church does as building and body. We grow. We grow. And all of this, all of this is possible only because the Spirit of God indwells us. And all of it is possible only because the Spirit of God indwelling us 
we have the word of God before us to lead us. It is these things that he has given us, his body, his building, his bride, that make us distinct. It isn't us that make us distinct. It is he who makes us distinct. And we saw that there last week that there is one thing that we must not do. And we must not grow weary in well-doing. It is so easy to do, to grow weary in well-doing. But we must not do it. And we can avoid that weariness by the three things that I gave you last week. And those three things are looking up to Christ instead of out to the world. Look up to Christ, for he is sovereign. He rules the universe. He rules the universe. He raises up one and takes down another. No authority on this planet exists or ever has existed or ever will exist that is not by his grand design. The good, the bad, and the really bad. These are all part of his sovereign plan. Do we always understand that? No. But we keep going because we know who holds the key to it all, and that is our sovereign God. So we look up to Christ, and then we also hope in Christ. When all seems hopeless, and it does seem hopeless so often. When all seems hopeless, he never fails. And so we hope in Christ, not in what we see. We hope in Christ. And then the third thing I told you is that we anticipate. We are always living in anticipation of his return. I love the last song we sang. Are the words here? One page. I will wait for you. I will wait for you. On your word I will rely. Not on what I see. Not on what I hear. But on the word of God. He has declared he will come again. And he will. Even if it seems like it tarries a long time. Our hope is not built on an anticipation of a return tomorrow. Our hope is built on an anticipation founded in the solid ground of the fulfillment of his promise, like every other promise he's ever made. He will return when he's ready. Today we're going to focus in on work. We're going to look specifically at the work of the betrothed. What does the bride of Christ in anticipating his return do? Now, because we're going to be talking about works, I want to give you a word of caution. I shouldn't need to do this, and maybe I don't need to do this, but I am compelled to do it. Please remember, none of the doing I'm going to be talking about today, that we are going to be reading about today, 
is a doing which will save us. None of it. All of it necessary, but none of it necessary for salvation. We are saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. Amen. I am so grateful it doesn't depend on me and my works. You too should be grateful it doesn't depend on yours. We are saved. No amount of works, no amount of works can bridge the gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness or your sinfulness. No amount of works. It, they can't pile up high enough to bridge that gap. Only grace through faith. I want you to remember 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9, and let me read it to you. This is not our main passage today. This is part of the caution. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. We do not work in order to get saved. We work because we are. We work out of love and a desire to glorify him. That is why we work. When our works begin to transform, maybe that's not, morph is maybe a better word, in our thoughts as though it is earning us some righteousness or some glorious thing, that's when our works become not good works or righteous deeds. I want us to look at Titus this morning as we talk about good works. Titus chapter 2. Um, yeah, page 1184 in your pew Bible. There are two specific things that the bride of Christ does while Christ's return tarries, and that is she weaves righteous deeds and she waits expectantly. We are going to focus in on righteous deeds this morning. The expectancy um, I will leave to you to think through. But Titus 2, I will begin reading in verse 7, and we're going to read through verse 14 of chapter 3. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants, and people, if you don't remember, we are bondservants. We were bought with a price to serve our Lord and Master. Bondservants are, be, are to be submissive to their masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good 
faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Let me pray. Thank you for your word, Lord God. For you always instruct us in the way that we should go. Thank you for your word. And that your eye guides us. And is always upon us. 
thank you for the spirit that you have given to us as our helper. To be reminded of those things that you taught and to be our guide into all truth. Father, we want to see with your eyes and hear with your ears the truth of your word. Help us in Christ's name. Amen. Before I dive into kind of a survey of this passage in Titus, I want to give us a bit of a definition or two, if you will bear with me, and even if you won't, you're stuck. Um, I think there is, in reality, a great deal of assumed knowledge about good works and righteous deeds, and I'm convinced there's a significant amount of erroneous thinking around what constitutes righteous deeds. And I think that this lack of or assumed knowledge and this um, erroneous thinking that we have built up about righteous deeds leads us to two things that really um, drive us not to be zealous for good works. The first is that they result, these wrong definitions, these wrong thoughts, result in begrudging labor, which robs us of the joy we are meant to have, the joy that good works are designed to bring us. When our understanding of what these things are is wrong, then we do the work out of a sense of obligation instead of a sense of joy. Now, we are obligated, but it is out of a heart of joy that the greatest benefit is received for us and the greatest glory given to Christ. Instead of rejoicing in good works that we are called to, oftentimes we groan under the weight of it. And there are two things you need to know about this righteous deeds that we've talked about. And the first is that the very term righteous deeds, and it is one word, in Revelation 19.8 refers to a right act done in fulfillment of a legal requirement. In fact, the root of the word is dikia, which is law. Righteous deeds are those deeds that conform to the law of God. The law of God is the scale upon which all works are measured. It is the scale. It determines whether a deed is righteous or not. We don't. And then the second thing is that anyone, saved and unsaved, can do a righteous deed. Anyone. The deed only needs to conform to the law of God to be considered righteous. But, there's always a but, but not all righteous deeds have the same result. Some produce bright, white, fine linen, Revelation 19.8, and others produce only filthy rags. Isaiah 64.5 and 6, Behold, 
you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags or a polluted garment. It really refers to menstrual garments. Filthy rags or bright white linen. What's the difference? What makes one righteous deed fine white linen and the other a filthy rag? The presence of the Spirit of Christ within the doer. That's what makes the difference. Those righteous deeds, and notice in Revelation 19.8, the righteous deeds of the saints produce the fine white linen. The righteous deeds performed by the saints are done because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Those who believe in Christ as the Son of God produce fruitful and profitable good works. I once heard a pastor say, if you don't know what to say in a sermon, you just quote Spurgeon. So I'm going to quote Spurgeon. Spurgeon, in a series of messages on good works, said this. Good works come from a real conversion brought about by the Spirit of God. Until our conversion, there is not a shadow of goodness about us. In the eye of the world, we may be reputable and respectable. But in the eye of God, we are nothing of the sort. He went on to say that when once the human heart is put under the microscope of Scripture and we see it with a spiritual eye, we see it to be vile and filthy, that we are quite sure that until we have a new heart and a right spirit, it would be just as impossible to expect to find good works in an unrighteous, unconverted man as to hope to see fire burning in the depths of the ocean. He had a way with words. If you haven't read any of Spurgeon, you should. What a masterful preacher. Now a question. What do earning a living, brushing your teeth, and wiping your baby's dirty bottom all have in common. <laughs> I'm not surprised to see a few brow, uh, burrow, um, brows furrowed with that question. What do they have in common? They are all righteous deeds. Let me show you why. The first, earning a living. It fulfills the law. Because then you do not steal. Exodus 21.15 Earning a living is a righteous act. A righteous deed. Brushing your teeth. 1 Corinthians 6.20 Glorify God in your body. I don't think bad breath ever glorified God. It is fulfilling one of the beautiful things about 
this image of God that is stamped upon us. Anytime we do anything that is in keeping with the image of God stamped upon us, we glorify him. We fulfill the law of Christ. So brushing your teeth fits right in there. And then the third is cleaning your baby's dirty bottom. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. All good works, not all things we normally think of as righteous deeds, but they are. And they are righteous deeds that actually produce fruit when they are deeds done by us who are part of the body of Christ, who are members of Christ through his righteousness and his shed blood. Good works always relieve need and further the gospel. To quote Paul here in Titus, he says, these are excellent things and profitable for people. So the definition I want you to take away from this discussion is that good works refer to human actions undertaken by the saints of God in obedience to God and conformity to his will. It's as simple as that. Good works are done by saints whose works conform to the will of God out of obedience to God. We're going to dive into Titus, and I'll be honest with you right up front. I am not going to do a good job of covering all that is in here. I can't. You wouldn't sit for it. And I'm not sure I'm prepared to do it, although I've prepared long and hard for today. And I say that not to raise myself or elevate myself, but to let you know that God's word at times requires us at times, that God's word requires us to think, to engage the mind that he has given us. Now, we don't engage the mind apart from his spirit or his word. We engage our minds into his word through his spirit. Those are incredibly important things to remember. But we must engage. We must think. We must study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. We must spend time in the Word. So there are three things, though, in this passage from Titus that I want to point out about good works. And the first is they are to be modeled. Good works are to be modeled. Why? Titus 2, 7 through 9. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Note, we will have opponents. We will. In this life, you will suffer persecution. We will have opponents. Our goal, at least one of the goals, in doing good works 
is to put those opponents to shame and to give them nothing evil to say about us. Why do we care? Because if they speak evil of us, they speak evil of Christ. We are his children, born into his family by his spirit, by his word, for his glory. If we give the enemy cause, then we bring shame on the name of Christ. We want to give them no cause, no reason, no way. And I'll tell you, the way we do this is not by trying to shout down the opposition. We don't do it by hateful posts on the internet about politicians we don't like. We don't do it by posting harmful, hurtful things about each other, by arguing in the public square with each other. That is not how we model good works. That is how we model evil works. We model good works as Paul states here, through integrity, sound speech, and dignity. And those are just some of the ways he lists here in Titus. Those are the ways that we model good works. And then number two, we must be trained to do them. They don't come naturally. Grace provides the training we need to be zealous for good works. And zealous means not to be satisfied with and showing a strong and energetic desire to get something done. That's what the word zealous means here. Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. Grace trains us to renounce passions. It trains us to live self-controlled lives. It trains us to wait patiently, eagerly for Christ's appearing. And it trains us to work zealously. Because that is why he has redeemed us as a people of his own. Three. We must be devoted to good works. Titus 3.8, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
But what things is he talking about? These things are excellent and profitable. And what is it that he wants to have insisted upon? 1 through 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we, and here's the reason, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Skipping down to verse 7. So that by being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul is echoing something he also wrote to Timothy. He uses almost the exact same phraseology. In 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Same words. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst or the foremost. Do you see it? This single truth that makes us ready for every good work is that Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the foremost, and so are you. What makes us ready to do good works is keeping that in perspective, always before us, that he saved us, not because we were saved worthy, but being virtue of his own mercy. He washed us through regeneration and has renewed us in the Holy Spirit. It is his work that makes us ready. And it is our being reminded of his work that makes us ready. So, what are these righteous acts, these good works done by the saints, actually look like? What I'm about to do actually has biblical precedence, even if you think I'm a bit weird. 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25 are the verses that made me start thinking in this way. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Now that's not the first. It's the very next. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot be hidden or remain hidden. And then I thought of Acts chapter 9, and this the first part of Acts 9 talks about Tabitha or Dorcas. Dorcas was a disciple of Christ that lived um, at the time of the apostles. She lived a life that was characterized by good works and works of charity. 
In fact, the scripture says she was full of good works and acts of charity. In fact, when she died, all the widows gathered together and stood beside her dead body after having washed it and prepared it for burial. They were weeping and showing tunics and garments that Dorcas had made for them while she was alive. Dorcas was spinning fine linen. She was doing good works. She was fulfilling the law of Christ by loving those around her and providing for their physical needs. And they all knew it. Now, I'm going to talk about some names this morning from our body. And none of these people are dead yet. <laughs> so um, some are with us today, some are not. But I chose these as way of illustration, not as an exhaustive list. So please, if you do not hear your name, please know that it's only because this is an illustrative list, a partial list, meant to drive home the point. I want to show you I want to show you some of the conspicuous fine linen that's being woven within our body. The first person that came to my mind as I was thinking about this, reflecting on Dorcas, was Marianne Iverson. Marianne shows up at the church every week faithfully to help count the money and then to pay our bills. But she does far more than that. On occasion, she makes a pot of soup at home for herself, and she never fails to bring some in for Dan and Gail and myself and shares it with us. It's just soup. Delicious, mind you, but just soup. That's fine linen. Because she's sharing out of what she has with us. And there's other fine linen that Marianne weaves, and, and that is visitation. She is always visiting people who we haven't seen. She goes by. She barges in and lets them know that she loves them and that they are loved and not forgotten. It is within her means and her abilities it is part of her gifting. And then she has shown fine linen weaving with me personally. When I had my seizures, she was the first to say, can I drive you to church? When she knew I couldn't drive myself. And she showed up faithfully every week. I never had to remind her. I never had to ask her. She just came and drove. That's fine linen. And then one of our sisters who's not with us here this morning, and I'm really sorry about it because I had a really good quip for her, but that's, Marianne, or that's uh, Marie Nickel. She has been a faithful servant over the millennia. Literally, she has at times run this church. And she did it all while receiving very little pay probably even less thanks 
than she deserves. That's fine linen. And she has also faithfully taught women, brought them into the presence of Christ around his word and the teaching of solid people. And she's done that faithfully year after year after year. But there's more fine linen that she weaves. And part of that fine linen is the weaving that she does by reminding us and posting to our faith life who's sick, who needs to be prayed for, what are the needs that we miss that we don't know about. She brings those before us faithfully. And all of this while her own health wanes. And then there's Cindy Staub. Cindy serves where very few of us dare to go. She serves in the nursery, and she serves in the kitchen, and she has faithfully for years executed that, quietly, not wanting the limelight, probably embarrassing her to heck right this moment. But Cindy, I want you to know the weaving is not unnoticed. And what is hidden cannot stay that way. And then there's Jerry Carlton. Are you here today? Yes, you are. I see you back there. And there's Jerry Carlton. Do you think that all those greeting cards you get in the mail just kind of happen miraculously? <laughs> well, I'm here to put the lie to your thinking. Jerry faithfully executes that ministry because it's something she can do. She chooses that because it's something she can execute with the talents that God has given her. She's faithful at it. She remembers your birthday when you'd rather forget it. And she remembers your anniversary when you did forget it and you wish you hadn't. And that reminder comes just in the nick of time. And then there's my sister, Naomi Lindsay. Fine linen, Naomi. You show up for prayer meeting every single week. Every week you're physically capable of showing up, and I'm sure when you're not, you're still praying. And you've done that for years, ever, ever since I've known but there's something you did recently for me that was fine linen. You called me out of the blue and shared with me what the Lord had been teaching you about Saul and him. And you shared that with me from Scripture. And it was a message I needed at that moment. That is fine linen. Each of these people who I have named publicly are modelers of good works. They have been faithful for years and continue to serve in whatever capacity they are physically able to do. I could go on and on. And in fact, Tuesday when this first came to my mind, I had 30 or 40 names listed 
before I had even passed the two-minute mark. It isn't hard. It isn't hard. There are many of you who faithfully do good works, and I could have named many, but I was afraid that by naming too many, I might build a big head, and I didn't want to do that. And I figured that there were only two names on the list I gave you this morning that that was a possibility of, and that would be Jerry and Marie. Um, and I'm so sorry she wasn't here to hear that. <laughs> I'm only kidding. But I do know these women well enough to know that I don't have to worry about pride or arrogance. So I want to leave you this morning with some questions. And I really would like for you to take these questions home with you. I'm going to post them tomorrow. The first question, are we zealous for good works? Are you zealous for good works? If you're not, why not? And what? Can we do to change that? Christ wants a people for his own who are zealous for good works. If you're not, what can change that? Are we devoted to doing good works as proof of our devotion to Christ? If not, why not? And what can we do to change that? Are we ready to do good works? Are we ready to do good works? To help cases of urgent need, as Paul said. And again, the question is, if not, why not? What's stopping us? What's hindering us? Cast off every hindrance. Nothing we cling to. Nothing you cling to. Nothing I cling to is worth the sacrifice of the glory of Christ. Let us cast off everything that hinders us and cling to Christ. I encourage you to study Titus this coming week. Read it over and over. Paul has much to say to Titus and the church in Crete about good works. And all of it applies to us. Titus has much more to tell us about good works than I've had the time this morning to do. I hope I've at least created maybe a thirst for knowing more and that you've been able to see the amazing beauty and magnificent glory of good works done for the very glory of Christ. Today closes this series on the church. I hope that these weeks of focused study regarding the birth, the building, 
the body and the bride of Christ have accomplished at least two things. First, that they have awakened us to the miraculous beauty and glorious purpose of the church of Christ that is us. And secondly, that somehow planted within us is now the zeal to make whatever individual changes and corporate changes we must in order to be models of that beauty. That models of that beauty to each other and to the world. People, this is why the world hates us. It would always hate us because it hates Christ, but its vehemence toward us has gotten stronger and stronger as we have gotten weaker and weaker in our modeling of Christ. I remind you of the Christians who lived in Rome at a time where people were sacrificing their babies on the altars of false gods. And when they weren't sacrificing them on the altars of false gods, they were tossing them into the river alive. And the church got rowboats, anything they could float on, and occupied underneath those bridges where the children were being thrown into the river and rescued them. That is what we are about. Those are the kinds of good works that no one can accuse us for having done. We cannot shout our ways into the hearts of men and women. The heart must change. And the only way the heart changes is through the working of the Spirit of God within the human heart to call one to himself. And one of the tools he uses to accomplish that are the good works of his people. I pray that Christ enlighten our eyes as we look into the light of his word. I pray that we may be changed, that I may be changed as an individual and as a church as we see through the corrective lenses of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we have not the capacity to change ourselves. We don't even have the capacity to learn that we need to change. That is all a work of your Spirit within us and your grace given to us. So we come before you and we ask you in the name of Christ, Spirit of God, work in us in such a way that zeal for good works overtakes us. And we understand and experience the joy of sacrificial giving of ourselves for each other. That the world might know that we have been with Christ. Lord, that is a work only you can accomplish. We've tried in our own strength and we failed miserably. And oftentimes our righteous deeds become filthy rags. 
but we want, Lord God, to be fine, white, linen weavers as a body of Christ. Teach us how. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.